Hello listeners, I'm your host Ziad Matar and I would like to welcome you all to the Wirelessly Yours podcast where I talk about everything tech, business and design. On each episode, I invite some of the brightest minds to join me and discuss cutting-edge technologies, emerging business models and the latest design trends that are transforming our world and shaping the future. Wirelessly Yours. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this new episode of the Wirelessly Yours podcast. I'm your host Ziad Matar and in this episode we will talk about facts and the truth. Joining me today, I have the great honor and privilege of hosting best-selling author and journalist Kim Rattas, who also happens to be a fellow alumnus from the American University of Beirut, where she currently sits on the board of trustees. Kim is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a contributing writer for The Atlantic magazine, having reported for the BBC and the Financial Times in the past. Kim, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's talk a bit about your uh, background, uh, literally, and both uh, both literally what's behind you and also what got you to uh, become a journalist, a member of the Board of Trustees, and uh, you know, an author. I became a journalist because I grew up in Lebanon. I um, grew up in the Civil War here, um, not far from where I am right now, which is close to the National Museum of Beirut. And we lived on the front lines of that civil war and growing up here in the 80s made me want to try to explain to myself and to others uh, the chaos that surrounded me. Because when you can explain it, when it can make a little bit more sense, you feel a little bit less um, powerless. So it was a dream that I, or it was a, it was a, a desire that I had from when I was 13 and I, pursued it assiduously and stubbornly almost until I achieved my goal and um, went to study at the American University of Beirut because I wanted to move from French education at school to English education at university Mm -hmm. because I knew that English language would give me a bigger platform. And I started with my first journalism internship while I was at AUB at the local newspaper, English language newspaper, um, The Daily Star. And after that, you know, one thing um, led to another. I started writing for the Daily Star, but also for foreign uh, news organizations. Then I started working for the BBC. Then I started working for the FT. I covered the Middle East for um, 10 years, and then I moved to to Washington, and I covered the State Department for, for 10 years. And you can see a little bit... In my background, if I move, uh, let's first yes. move this way. Yeah. You see the painting uh, by with four uh, faces, which is a print by a very famous um, Iraqi artist, um, Ismail Fattah. He is uh, very famous. He um, was uh, he became famous in the 60s and 70s in, in Iraq. Uh, this print is is by him. He's also he also has a lot of paintings and I believe some sculptures. But certainly he's very famous for the open dome um, that is a key landmark um, in in Baghdad, yes. uh, a monument to um, to the fallen soldiers, if I'm not mistaken, to the Iran Iraq War. Um, I bought that on one of my first earliest trips to Baghdad while it was still under. Um, Saddam Hussein's rule. And I was, as somebody who'd never been to Iraq before, was amazed by the incredible art that was available 
by Iraqi artists. I mean, there's a long tradition of art. And of course, everyone remembers as well as Hadid, uh, incredible world-renowned architect, British Iraqi. If I move a little bit this side, you'll see um, on the shelf an old radio uh, by Philips in mm -hmm. Baghdad, which I bought in Amman uh, on one of my many trips to Jordan as well while I was covering the region. And then right next to the radio is an Emmy Award, which I'm very grateful to have um, won along with my colleagues from the BBC for our coverage of the Lebanon war, the war between Hezbollah and Israel in 2006. Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, good, good. Well, it's a very rich uh, background for sure, both uh, literally and uh, figuratively. And, uh, you know, I feel a little bit uh, intimidated because you're the one who does the interviews normally, not me. So we're going to try to have uh, a bit of fun and, you know, you, you'll guide me along the way. And we jump into our first section, which we call the elephant in the Zoom. And really here, the the question that uh, comes to, to my mind is because I'm a, a, a big fan of books and the printed word is who reads anymore? What makes you write books? Because we know that people don't have the time or are spending their attention in other places. So who do you really think reads nowadays? You know, that's such a great question. And I'm going to split it in two. Why do you write books? Or was, so how did you put it? Why, why do I write books and who reads them, right? So there are two Good. separate questions. Yeah. And I think they have to be kept separate because why do you write books? I don't know who it was who once said you shouldn't write because um, just because you, you, you have a specific, just because you think you're going to sell books. You have to write because this book needs to be written because it hasn't been written before because it's, it needs to come out of you. Mm. And that's why I wrote both of my books. So I wrote um, the first book in 2013 was The Secretary, a journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the heart of American power. And that book was about my journey first as a young Lebanese growing up on the front line of a civil war, on the receiving end of American power, going to Washington, to cover that same foreign policy being made by you know, Americans, by the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. It's the story of American foreign policy uh, traveling with the American Secretary of State around the world. And it's the story, of course, of Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, as this embodiment in that moment of American, of American power. And I really wanted to write that book for myself having been on that journey from, you know, as I said, on the receiving end of American power to the front lines, to the front seat, uh, the front row watching that policy being made, trying to make sense of everything that I'd been through, everything that I'd seen. And I wanted to write that book for others who, like me, had grown up on the receiving end of American foreign policy, who still are, whether they're in Ramallah, whether they're in Islamabad or uh, Sao Paulo, or, you know, I'm not going to say Beijing in the sense that it's not on the receiving end of American foreign policy in the same way that if you were living in the Middle East or in Latin America at some point. Um, but a lot of people around the world still have a lot of questions about American policy, how it works, how it doesn't work. And increasingly in this multipolar world, they're asking themselves how much of it is still there and how much of it is still effective. And increasingly, I think people are wondering what it might be like if despite all of America's faults, the real power now could rest in the hands of Russia and China. 
So that's why I write that. That's why I wrote that book. And then the second book, Black Wave, which is about the Saudi-Iran rivalry, which started really in 1979, and which really changed um, culture, religion, and our collective identity and memory in the region. I really wanted to write that book for perhaps mostly a Western audience because there are so many misconceptions about the region, which I wanted to address in that, in that writing about how the region was different before, why you know, intolerance and extremism did not always define us, even if it's mostly in the headlines because you know, the region is still incredibly tolerant and diverse. Um, I wanted to dispel some of these misconceptions about, you know, the Sunni-Shia sectarian divide and what it really is and what it isn't and why Sunnis and Shias have not always been killing each other, mm -hmm. even if the schism has always been there historically. And so the, those are the reasons why I wanted to write these books. These are, uh, you know, I, I did hope that I would have an audience, but I wanted to write them because I thought they must be written. And that's what drives you as an author. Otherwise, it's very hard to maintain the discipline of writing every day and sitting at your desk and doing the hard work of, of putting pen to paper day after day after day. But who reads the books? That's a very good question. Um, I've been incredibly blessed with both books, but especially with the second book to have received incredible um, feedback from readers everywhere. And I want to tell you about mostly the readers of Black Wave because the book came out at the beginning of 2020 and I was very lucky that it came out just before the pandemic and I did have a bit of a real book tour with actual studio interviews and actual lectures and, and all of that. And then the pandemic hit and two things happened, Siad. One is that suddenly I thought, oh, goodness, you know, I guess this is it. This is the end of the book tour. Yeah. But I started getting a lot of emails from readers around the world telling me that I was their confinement companion. Amazing. I got emails from Ireland. I got emails from Italy. I got emails from Brazil, from Pakistan, from various states in America, I, I think I remember Florida, Arizona, uh, New York State, uh, California. I got emails from really everywhere and, and I respond and, and I cherish these emails. And it was just so heartening to get these emails from people, some of whom had never read a book about the Middle East, but had seen all the headlines throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, they picked up this book and I, I really, I got some emails where people said, now I get it. Now I get what it's all about. And that was just so rewarding to, to feel, to think that, you know, even if there was just one person who'd read my book and thought, okay, that was worth the author's effort. You know, for me, that would have been enough. But I still get them to this day a year and a half later, and it's incredibly rewarding and humbling. And then the other unusual thing that happened, or not unusual, because we simply didn't know what was going to be business as unusual during yeah. a pandemic for books, right? The other thing that happened is that the book tours just, the book tour just continued. After a little pause, after hiatus, when everybody's trying to figure out how long it's going to go on and what might happen and how are we going to do this, everything moved online. Yes. And the incredible thing is you discover 
how much can be done online. So for example, in, in one month earlier this year, I think it was February, I had a lecture at Duke University. I had a lecture at the Foreign Service Institute of the State Department in Washington. I participated in the Jaipur Literary Festival and I participated in the Lahore Literary Festival. Can you imagine doing that in real life in one week, traveling to all these places in just one week? You would die from the jet lag. So, as, sorry, and what? Yes, exactly. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Lots of points, and, and, for sure. You know, and as much uh, as I cherish meeting people in real life, and I look forward to when we can do that again, I am amazed by the opportunity of doing these lectures and these encounters online and reaching an even wider, wider audience. And I really do hope that we keep some of that when life yes. resumes as normal. Absolutely. I think... Uh, we, we're all talking about this uh, now because there is, uh, you know, gradual opening, uh, reopening of uh, of activities everywhere. Uh, more and more in Dubai, uh, where I have most of my businesses, it's, it's happening. And when I travel to Dubai, uh, it's a completely different scene than when I'm working in, in Barcelona here, where it's behind the screen. But uh, we've definitely seen it in, in all our businesses, but also in our non-profit work uh, through Thai, that you can multiply exponentially, not even linearly, uh, the power of what you can do uh, with the adoption and the acceptance of doing things online, whether just a business meeting, uh, an introduction or a workshop or yeah. you know, spreading although, the great news. Yeah, although I have to say that I also hope we, we maintain a bit of uh, balance because everything is now a zoom call and there are zoom calls before the zoom call and things that would have been a five minute phone call before are now an hour zoom call and so i think we have to be careful a little bit as well uh, i i think that uh, what's happening is lots of people talked about oh working under working from home but i think the first uh, three to six months that we have experienced was work from home under a lockdown, which is completely yeah. different from working partially from home and then partially from the office and then still having to travel sometimes, which is going to happen more and more. And this will bring a whole new set of uh, experiences yeah, and, and ways to you know, a lot of people them. say it wasn't working from home, it was living at work. Yeah, correct. And, you know, we, we worked a lot. And for for some some people, myself, it, it opened up new opportunities to do things yeah. that I always wanted to do, like wireless yours, for instance, because I was too busy uh, flying around maybe to do that yeah. uh, and yeah. writing some articles, which not many people read yet. But like as exactly as you said, I write them because I enjoy writing them. And then some maybe one person only will, will find something in them. Absolutely. And I'm more than uh, happy to hear that. Uh, Going back, you know, to the to the sec to both books actually, because you said you're on the receiving end of uh, of uh, American policy, and and there's a big uh, uh, always you know feeling in in the region, many regions I guess in the world share this that oh everything is being manipulated, you know it's a big conspiracy and you know the Americans they're bad and they're doing everything, and then you went into this first front row. To watch have done, but also the whole world was brought to this front row through fiction, uh, whether the West Wing or the uh, uh, or Veep, uh, I think. But but mostly, in my case, the two series that I really enjoyed watching were House of Cards and, and Homeland. Uh, and when we see what's happening behind the scenes, uh, and sometimes this being somehow re replicated or echoed 
particularly in the last uh, four or five years in real life, we start wondering what's real, uh, what's serious, uh, is, this, is this how it really happens? Because also we, saw, we see a lot of mistakes that happen in these movies and then... In heat, yes. <laughs> exactly, percolate, exactly. So uh, how much do you see that analogy between fiction or how this world is fictionalized, romanticized, and the real, uh, the real way it happens? Well, fiction is fiction, and Netflix series are Netflix series, and the West Wing is pretty realistic, but 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 it's it's still it's still the West Wing. And I know that there were a lot of parallels with how things unfolded in real life. Suddenly, like is art imitating life, or life imitating art? But uh, you know, not sort of again self promote my own my own book, but but the closest uh, 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 rendering of reality of foreign policy making as it really is is found in in books or stories. But for example, if you read The Secretary, you're really sitting there with the Secretary of State in her meeting with the Chinese foreign minister. You're really sitting there with Jake Sullivan, who's now national security advisor for Biden, but who at the time was um, uh, uh, director for policy planning and deputy chief of staff for, for Hillary Clinton. You're really sitting down with him um, as I tell the story of how he's thinking through the different elements of you know, policy problems for the secretary or sitting on the plane in March 2011, going to um, the Middle East as uh, about a month after the fall of Hosni Mubarak while a tsunami is happening in Japan. Saudi Arabia is uh, sending troops into Bahrain. Um, Libya is erupting as well and Syria is erupting and everything is happening at the same time. And if you're China, you can say, you know, I'm only going to focus on, you know, the tsunami because it's close to me and the Middle East, you know, uh, as long as I get my oil, that's fine. But if you're America, you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing um, which problems you, you want to think about. And so you really see that foreign policy of the United States is not, you know, something that happens with a push of a button. It's really being made by fallible human beings who are doing the best they can with information they have. Um, and we can discuss whether their policy is, um, is bad or good or whether America is a force for good or not. But the book gives you a better grasp of you know, what is inside this machine. It demystifies this machine. That's really what I also wanted to do, both for readers around the world, but also for Americans, for them to have a better understanding of what their country's foreign policy means for uh, for other countries, so I think that you know series like The West Wing or uh, Veep are are great. They're fun, but I personally, because I'm a journalist, because I have been close to these parts of of you know the halls of power, I can see where it's not realistic. Um, you know, when I watched, for example, the series, I think it was called Madam Secretary. I got really annoyed because I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not how she takes it. <laughs> that's not how she gets briefed. Um, it's like journalists watching the newsroom. It just doesn't work. And I'm sure that's how doctors feel when they watch series like ER, right? When you know it from the inside, you know where it's, it's, not, it's not accurate. So, so watch these with, um, enjoy them, but take them with a pinch of salt. Um, take them for what they are, which is function. Uh, read books and watch documentaries.
Amazing. And uh, to close this particular section about, especially about Madame, about the secretary, uh, and without getting you into trouble, you can decline to answer if you want, but is Claire Underwood in House of Cards inspired or close to how Hillary Clinton is? Oh, gosh, no. Uh, how she is? No, no, no. I mean, I, I thought the character of Claire Underwood was very um, interesting uh, in, in the series. I got a little bit tired of House of Cards after, I think, two seasons. It was just a little bit too much. But I found Hillary Clinton to be much warmer. I mean, I think Claire Underwood is quite a cold, manipulative, calculating person. And perhaps... It was inspired by the caricature that people have of Hillary Clinton in, yeah. in some people's minds, but it's Correct. nowhere near the person that, that I know and, and sat with on the plane and, and traveled with and interviewed uh, 18 times. Hillary Clinton is a public servant by excellence. Uh, she's almost boring in that way. She's a politician too with her, with her, with her husband, um, of course, but to me, it, it never looked like power, the pursuit of power just for the sake of power. It really was about serving the country. And that's why she got faulted for being such a dork, in essence, uh, you know, a nerd busy with details who didn't, uh, the details of policy, who didn't know how to talk and, and be an orator and, you know, reach out to the crowds and, um, yes. So yeah, I, I just don't don't see the similarities too much. And the other thing is, you know, she's really funny. She has an incredible sense of humor. She tells great jokes. Well, good. Then that says that you have the great time, ups and downs, uh, like you said, witnessing uh, all the crisis, but also being with with such an interesting uh, character, you know, in first degree. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible privilege. They... You know, it's exactly. an incredible privilege, and I try never to forget that. I try never to forget where I came from. You know, literally sitting in a bomb shelter in the 80s in Beirut, in you know an area known as Galeri Saman, Hail American, for those listeners who speak Arabic or who know Beirut and who know that this was sort of Sniper Alley Central. And I'll never forget where I came from as I write for the Atlantic, as I interview you know high-ranking American officials or senators, um, or you know appear on American TV shows. I always try to remember where I came from because that's what drove me to become a journalist and that would, that's what drives my passion to continue to try to write about the facts and about the region. And I hope you know this, this journey will continue and you'll even have more reasons to not forget where, where you came from considering the, the caps that you are jumping uh, across with what you're doing. Um, let's talk a little bit more also about uh, Black Wave. So uh, from, you know, we talked about the book tour in, uh, in, in lockdown but what we're seeing also is, uh, you talked about the shifting alliances uh, at the heart of, of what's happening since 1979, as you said. And uh, it feels to me that, uh, you know, this topic we spoke about just before starting the, the, the recording of the session, that we are in really the middle, if not hopefully the end of World War III, but it's a different uh, kind of war. What's, what's your take on that? I think we are in a world that is finding, trying to find a new balance. You know, uh, what Ian Bremmer calls the, the G0 world where no one is the leading power. It's not the G7, it's not the G8, it's the G0. 
I'm not sure I fully agree with that, or perhaps I don't want to contemplate that option because it feels already quite complicated to live in that world and to some extent a bit scary. I know that in the Middle East, we have a lot of criticism of the US, a lot of resentment against the US. But I look at Russia's role in Syria. I look at China's um, you know, concentration camps of Uyghurs. And I don't want to live in that world. I think that the US still brings to the table a desire to try to do good alongside supporting and fighting for its interests. And I hope that American officials will see, especially in this administration, that if they tried to align their values and their interests a little bit more, it would actually serve them and the world much better and it would help contrast them uh, and, and make the difference between them and China and, and Russia. I do think that we are in a unique moment for the world, sort of an inflection point because of the pandemic. Um, that to me felt like World War III because not since World War II has the world, the globe, the whole globe, almost every single country in the world been united by one shared experience. And it wasn't uh, violence and invasions and, and, and shelling and air raids like World War II, but it was confinement and lockdowns and vaccines and hospitals overflowing across the world. Um, and it was incredible to see how around the world people were also going through the shared experience of bizarre and weird dreams. I, I read some pieces about it. I, I, I wrote a little bit about it. Everyone around the world was reporting heightened senses of, 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 of reality um, mm -hmm. in their own dreams. Um, it was a shared experience for six months as the world just sort of shut down. And we have to emerge from that better and not just jump back into um, the way it was or lose ourselves into joyful celebration about the end of the pandemic because it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to refocus on what really matters it is an opportunity to do away with what did not matter, what was what was not right before, um, you know, the rise in inequalities, which have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. What, what, what can we do about that? Can we find a way to address globalization in a way that is more equal? And, you know, when it comes to China, Russia and, and, and the US and the great power um, competition, you know, I hope it stabilizes in, in favor of, justice, rule of law, and governance everywhere. Uh, it feels like we're, we're at the moment where uh, in the past we saw this from uh, the eco environmental uh, aspect, uh, in, you know, which impacted a lot uh, business and technology and politics and sustainability, basically, as a big uh, word. But uh, as you were talking now, I was thinking, is there a more sustainable way to do politics? Because there was a mentality of I need to win, and it's all in our uh, in our. It should be in our advantage. But but that then you pay the price, either for you years later when the the next elections are happening, or four decades later, or or, or what, whatever is the the next cycle. What, what do you see there? Uh, but who is we? Is that the U.S. Is that Saudi Arabia? Is that we as politicians, right? Anybody? It could be well, the U.S. Could, I mean, if you're yeah. sitting in 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 the in the in the you know, if you're sitting in uh, in Russia, in Moscow, you want to win. You want to stay in power. You want to, you know, extend your rule for as long as possible. 
you want to win against the U.S. You want payback against the loss of, um, you know, power after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. You know, to some extent, it's the same for China. And China and Russia are increasingly, I'm not going to say in lockstep, but they see an opportunity to push back against American interests and American power and American presence. So it's always been about power and staying in power, you know, since, you know, the beginning of times in a way. But, you know, I don't want to sound naive or Pollyannish, but is it possible that we're entering a period of the world, of, of the world's history where um, it could ease a little bit that great power competition? I just, I just don't know. It could, about, it could be about to get worse. It yeah. could be about to get worse. A lot of it depends on President Biden and how, how much he has to deal with domestically, how much he can do internationally, um, whether um, you know Russia and, and, and China are in fighting mode for, and for how long, or if they're going to have increasing problems. You know, we, we don't know yet exactly. It's, it's very hard to predict history, actually. And it's very hard to know what kind of inflection point you are at. You know, in 1979, which was really an incredible year, not only for the Middle East, but for the world, we were at an inflection point. But when you were in that moment, in 1979, you didn't quite realize that and you didn't quite know how things were going to, how things were going to unfold. That's true. And what... Well, you know what the the previous world order or the one that was prevalent was okay. We we fight and we do war and it's about weapons and trenches and soldiers and and maybe it evolved a little bit uh, uh, in the first two decades of this century into I sent a drone and and whatever. But then suddenly, what we saw happening, uh, which is almost uh, science fiction, is oh now we're able to manipulate the election in the United States. Uh, from outside, uh, exactly, and and uh, so that brings me to the third part of our uh, chat today: the future of of truth and the facts. Uh, and I, we've covered also on wirelessly yours before, the, you know, topics like uh, the social dilemma. Uh, you know, the debate, the, the the topics that were covered in the social dilemma, which is the uh, the documentary on uh, on how social media is being also uh, influenced and used to influence other people. So. What's your view on that from the perspective of journalism and your mission uh, behind the, you know, after facts and truth? Hmm. You know, th there are days when um, I, I ask myself that, that question that you asked me at the beginning, you know, why, you know, who reads you? I don't ask myself that exactly like this, who reads me, but sometimes I do think, does it matter? Does it still make a difference? Yeah. Yes, it makes a difference when one reader sends um, an email to say, I read it, I read your book, and now I understand, now it makes sense, and thank you very much. But it's a drop in the ocean. When I look at the flood of misinformation on social media, on Facebook, sometimes even on, on you know, what are supposed to be, you know, reputable news stations like Fox News, um, it's really depressing. It's really depressing. And I think that that's something that we really must turn our attention to. And we must do that in, in several different ways. One, we have to have 
um, news literacy programs in, in schools and high schools and universities. People need to understand where to get their news, how to get their news, and how to do their own basic fact checking. You know, I often get something sent to me by friends, which is, you know, I can immediately tell it's outrageously wrong, but they don't know. You know, they read this on a website, they, they're, they're wondering, you know, is this true or not? And, you know, if you Google it and you don't see it in two reputable news sites, and of course, you know, the basic here has to be that we have to agree that, you know, media like, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Guardian, the BBC, etc., have standards. You can think that they lean left or right or that they have a certain worldview. Sure. But they report the news. And then you have news agencies like the Associated Press and Reuters. And, you know, these are at least we, we must be able to agree that they are about reporting um, the facts. And so when you read something that sounds a bit odd, whether it's on Facebook or, or, or Twitter, first of all, don't just repost it and just retweet it because it's interesting or because you think it's outrageous, like, you know, um, you know, thousands of ballots being stuffed into the machines during 2016 in favor of Hillary Clinton. I mean, who else reported that? No one. So, you know, it doesn't take very much to just do this little bit of Googling to see whether it's being reported by at least one other reputable um, news agency or, or news, news media. And that's what we did as journalists, you know, as a BBC reporter, I was not allowed to go on air if there was a breaking news story that was being reported by only one wire agency. You know, the wire agency are those who are really on the front line of the news happening. They're the ones who are really everywhere. And the minute something happens or someone says something or a bomb goes off or, you know, there's an accident, they're the ones sending back the report to the, to the headquarters. And then it gets disseminated everywhere. So unless it was on two of these, we were not allowed to report it unless we had our own confirmation. And I think that's really should be the basics of news literacy, and it should be taught today. The second thing that I think that we need to do is um, be careful about monetizing news too much. Yes, we need to rethink the business model. We need to make sure that newspapers and TV stations are profitable because newspapers, especially not news, not, not TV, but newspapers are dying around the world and it's great to have a proliferation of news outlets online but you know quantity does not mean quality and as i just said you know you have lots of different news sites that are sometimes making things up completely and sometimes misreporting and they repost things that are not that are not accurate so we want to find sustainable business models for newspapers in countries around the middle east but also across America where newsrooms in small towns are dying. And that's why, because the news is concentrated on the East Coast and the West Coast, no one really understood what was happening in middle America, in states yeah. where newspapers had died and there was no local newspaper anymore. We need to bring that back. And I know a lot of people are working on that, including things like, uh, you know, Ground Truth Project and Reporting for America um, in the US. And we need a similar effort around around the Arab world. So we don't want to just think about the business model because we want to uh, help the news industry remain 
sound and viable and, and profitable because we as journalists are the least, are, are the worst paid, um, uh, in one of the worst paid industries, professional industry, uh, with a lot of stress, etc. And I, you know, when I started, it was still okay. But when I look at young journalists who are starting today and stringers and fixers, etc., it's it's really very difficult to make ends meet. So we want to think about that, but we also want to separate, especially in news television, in news reporting, we want to separate corporate profit from the news reporting. Because when you look at the media landscape in the US, it's all about driving the ratings. It's all about that. And there's no more, there's no charter anymore for impartiality, for reporting the facts. It's all about partisanship. And that's what's really um, killing people's understanding of the news and driving people into these silos where they only sit in echo chambers that um, that uh, confirm what they want to believe. What they want to hear. Exactly. Which is the biggest, uh, you know, uh, criticism on social media now because it really amplifies these echo chambers. Exactly, and, and the social media and the F and, and, and Facebook and all of that and, and you know, news groups on, on WhatsApp, etc. then amplify what you're getting on, depending on the TV stations that you're looking at. And then in the Arab world, we have another problem, which is, you know, lack of independent uh, yeah. news media. It's all politically backed by governments, and that's a big problem. So you need to somehow decouple these two things, you know, the, the, the revenue machine from the, the truth machine or the fact. Uh, yes, and I, think, and I think the, the consumer needs to understand the value of paying for news. For it's news. really not that much. It's really and paying not for much. content in general. Absolutely, paying for content. There are real people who are producing this content. And they deserve to be paid to bring you uh, the best, accurate, most up-to-date, factual reporting possible. And then a, a certain business model to reach those who cannot afford it in this case, other because you don't want uh, those who cannot pay for it not to hear it. Well, it can be, you know, it can be, um, you know, it, it can be on, on a, you know, you have subscription models like New York Times, Washington Post, but it can be contributions also like The Guardian does. You know, you want to yes. contribute a dollar a year, that's a dollar a year. Still makes a difference. Excellent. Fantastic. Great, great uh, session, uh, Kim. Uh, I want to really thank you for, again, thank for joining for me today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners, thanks again for being with us on this episode. I sincerely hope you enjoyed the rich conversation and amazing insights of Kim. Please make sure you buy uh, her latest book, Black Wave. It's available on all platforms, uh, e-commerce, uh, uh, audio platforms, and uh, I'm sure they can also get their hands on uh, your own and book and real bookshops. Exactly, real visit, bookshops. visit your local bookshop. Support local businesses wherever you are. Absolutely, and maybe you can find the secretary as well uh, yes. and buy it. Yeah. I, I know I have it. I need to read it, but I have it. Uh, you can also continue the conversation with us uh, online through our social media uh, channel. Uh, so, but before we tune out, please remember to rate and review the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Dear listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe to Wireless The Yours on your favorite podcast app. We are available on all popular platforms, including Angami, Apple, and Spotify. 
Your opinion matters to us, so leave us a review with your feedback and stay tuned for more. Wirelessly yours.